there's so much shit that happens in my world, but I had a stroke in 2009. And what was interesting is that was the last near-death experience that I had, and it was the most enjoyable one. Hey folks, this week on The Wealth Faculty, I had a chance to sit down with one of my faculty members, Kerwin Ray, one of Australia's most uh, prolific business entrepreneur trainers when it comes to peak performance in your business, in your entrepreneurship, and in your personal life as well. We dived deep into some of the technologies and trainings that Kerwin does. I certainly personally have benefited from Kerwin's technology and training when it comes to understanding our emotions, the emotional pendulum, how we train ourselves mentally, emotionally, physically to become the best you you can be, the best in business, the best person, whatever it might take. It's an excellent conversation this week with Kerwin Ray on The Wealth Faculty. Hope you'll enjoy. Kerwin Ray, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you here today. Jason, any time I get to spend with you, mate, is always a pleasure. So thank you so much for having me, mate. And happy new year, hopefully 2021. Happy new year to you too. Yes, hopefully 2021 for all of us. Um, well, for some of us, we had a great 2020. Uh, we might talk about that later on. But um, yeah. one of the things I'd love to kick off with today, um, which is uh, quite interesting, um, you're a bit of a uh, uh, an escape artist from death, almost so six or seven, <laughs> six or seven near death experiences. Uh, you know, you're you're yeah. more well known for you know coaching and business, uh, social media, um, and um, you know um, the world of business entrepreneur and and training um but what uh can you tell us about these near-death experiences because um it's really interesting way to kick off the conversation and i think they sort of (laughs) had a little bit of influence on your life ah look it's interesting like the more podcasts i do the more more i realize people seem to have a level of fascination when it comes to uh mortality and or near-death mortality um yeah look there's uh there's been a few i stopped counting um the (laughs) probably one of the most well-known ones that i had which was the first one i had when i was 15 you know, I fell on a broken bottle. I don't know if you can see on your, your cameras there. I've got uh, two perler scars, one that starts here, goes all the way around here, and one that starts up here and goes all the way down here. Yes. Oh, when, when they were fresh, you know, they, they pretty much took up half my arm. And I fell over on a broken bottle, cut my uh, main artery, all my nerves, all my tendons, nearly bled to death on the side of the road. Ended up getting two blood transfusions and uh, having 13 and a half hours of microsurgery uh, before being told uh, not only I was a very lucky boy, um, but the fact that I was going to be more than likely disabled. Uh, he said, the doctor, the surgeon at the time said, look, the damage was really bad. He said, the best, we did the very best that we could do. Uh, but unfortunately, the damage was pretty bad. I don't expect a full recovery. You'll maybe get 20, 25% use of your hand back if you maintain physical therapy. Um, he said, but you're going to have a long road ahead of you. But just so you know, you will be eligible for disability pension. And um, yeah, that was quite profound because I, uh, and Jay, you know a little bit about my story. I yeah. didn't. I failed every subject from year to one to year 12. And so at this stage of life, I'm 15. I'm in early manhood or that part of my development anyway. And yeah, I had um, aspirations and goals and a vision of being, you know, some form of a professional athlete at this point. And so um, when I thought I was going to be physically disabled, that all came crashing down. And yeah, you're right. It was really fundamental. Um, I think every near-death experience, you know, leaves an impact. I think I had a few because I live a very exciting life and I am a little bit of a slow learner. 
Um, but that for me was not only near death, but it was something I took with me, you know, because it's one thing to have something happen to you and you only carry the memory. But when you carry something with you every day, yeah. even to this day, I'm still rehabbing. I'm still trying to learn how to close these fingers and, you know, I'm still learning how to get there and I'm very close. And so I'm still rehabbing it every single day. And so I, I, I take the memories of this one with me everywhere because, um, so, you know, I still, I still retain the physical experience. And so for me, it really taught me the power of resilience Yeah, and I was off school for nine months, you know, and I uh, was in rehab, hour and a half bus in, hour and a half bus out, hour and a half rehab every day, six days a week for nine months. And yeah, it took an enormous part of my life, uh, dedicated to just being able to, you know, touch my fingers together, yeah. uh, as an example. And that for a 15 year old kid, who's quite, um, impressionable, you know, uh, that's a pretty astounding challenge to give to anyone who's going through, you know, the solidification of their identity. Yeah. You know, early at that age. And for me, yeah. And for me, I really learned at a very fundamental stage of life, the importance of resilience, you know, the importance of pushing through, you know, I, I was very familiar with pain. I was very familiar with discomfort. I was very familiar with, you know, the embarrassment because you know, for 12 months I had a a plastic cast on my arm that had four big giant metal prongs. I looked like fucking Freddy Krueger. The kids are still called Freddy Krueger, you know, with uh, each prong having a little uh, little bucket on it that held my fingers out, and they were held with um, with uh, elastic just to keep my hand straight, just to be able to keep my fingers straight so that my hand didn't turn into a claw. And I made the most of it. Yeah, I, I copped a lot of stick at school, but it made a great sh uh, Shanghai as well. Like I was an absolute assassin <laughs> when it came to flicking uh, ro rolled up pieces of paper around the classroom, let me tell you right now. Um, but, you know, from there I had a, n a number of other experiences. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I did a, a stint in private security for about four and a half years and I worked some very violent pubs and clubs. And, yeah, I've been stabbed. I've been shot at. I've had a gun put in my mouth, you know, in very volatile situations. I've had... You know, mates that have been shot dead uh, on the doors of nightclubs that I've that I've worked with. I've had a mate that actually, or not a mate, so much as a guy, an, an acquaintance, uh, a colleague. You know, he was stabbed um, with a penknife on the dance floor in front of me, and he died. You know, literally six minutes later. Mm. Uh, and I uh, I bear witness to that. And so I've not just seen my I've I've lost and I've had, you know, I lost my first mate. I think my first um, I, I my first one of my best mates died at the age of. Um, I think I was 13 or 14, my, my best mate's brother, and we were like a solid trio. Uh, he, he, he died from suicide. And then it was maybe six months later, I lost another mate to uh, a drunk driver. And I lost, you know, I had my own near death experiences, but I also was exposed to a lot of death. And as a result, you know, it gave me a lot of time for a lot of opportunities for reflection on what mortality in, means. Introspection. And would you say, you know, uh, certainly in, in the world of, um, you know, coaching and training and, and, um, you know, your world and, and certainly also my world, we, we see uh, people take heed of their life after significant experiences often. Um, and would you sort of in retrospect look back and say uh, they were gifts, maybe not in the moment, but gifts to have those moments early in your life to say, well, maybe, oh. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it takes me all the way, you know, there's, there's near drownings, there's a whole bunch of things that have happened, skydiving, accident, um, and you get to my last near death or to the last one I started counting, I stopped counting deliberately, because um, I just have a life, like, honestly, my life is a movie, I, there's so much shit that happens in my world, but I had a stroke in 2009. And what was interesting is that was the last near death experience that I had, and it was the most enjoyable one. Mm. Because there was not one part of me from the moment there was the onset of the stroke, I knew something was seriously wrong, but I wasn't afraid. I absolutely lent into it. I 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. It sounds it was a near-death experience, NDE, and it sounds a little strange to say that, but it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And that was probably one of the, as was the 15-year-old, you know, having the near-death experience, that 34-year-old who had the, you know, the 20-cent piece stroke in his brain. That was at an incredibly powerful turning point in my life for a whole range of reasons as well. And you've been um, fascinated with entrepreneurship, you know, your first business at age 23 and, and, and multiple businesses since then. Um, you know, what, what comes up for me right now is like if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space, that, you know, meme or something <laughs> like might, might get you a T-shirt uh, for that one, Kerwin. But, um, you know, was that part of, um, you know, your life right from the start, you know, um, making the most of what you had going after business and entrepreneurship, you know, how did that passion come about? Was that something on purpose um, or was that something often accidental for many entrepreneurs sort of getting into business? You know, they say voids breed values and, you know, I grew up as a kid um, that did a lot of stuff. You know, I tried a lot of stuff. I did a lot of stuff as a kid, but I do remember having a a disproportionate level of, I guess you could say, uh, maybe levels of fear, but also incredibly high levels of social anxiety. And and so for me, you know, um, I really had to learn, you know, people look at me now and I'm quite an extreme personality, but the reason I'm quite an extreme personality is because I've learned the power of extreme situations and I've learned the power of, you know, putting yourself in extreme situations, what that gives you in a normal situation. Yeah. And, you know, and so for me, you know, I always used to, and I guess in many respects, avoid things that were confronting, avoid things that were painful, avoid things that were scary. Um, and I think it was, you know, it was probably around the ages of probably 13, 14, where I started getting into the gym. And the gym really, actually, no, it was like 11. I've got my first weight set at 11, uh, absolutely mad on the gym. And for me, I started to learn uh, the more I trained that there was a really strong correlation between muscle pain and growth. And the more you know, the more muscle pain you experience, the the more growth that you had. And yeah, I guess you could say I've kind of seen that as a as a conduit in life. And um, you know, I think it was probably around the ages of 15, 16, where I started to realize that I needed to, to pursue things that were difficult. I, I, you know, and, and and you know, this might sound really strange, but you know, one of the things that I found difficult that gave me enormous levels of social anxiety is my brother used to come home from school because he used to get in fights all the time and he'd often get, you know, beat up because where we grew up in Townsville was a pretty rough place. And I used to get massive levels of anxiety about going, shit, you know, what's, is that going to happen to me when I go to school? And, you know, when I started going to high school and getting exposed to this stuff, I started to realize, and I did a lot of martial arts that at first, you know, I was really scared of getting into a fight. And that prevented me from being able to think clearly in a, you know, in, in I guess you could say a schoolyard combat situation. And I just learned. The more I ex- exposed myself to it, the easier it got. And then when I got into security, you know, I, I really started to see the value of exposing yourself to extreme amounts of stress because I saw, you know, I saw my own response to uh, an all-in brawl initially in the early stages, and I saw other people's response. And you know, some bouncers would go and hide, you know. Whereas for me, I learned the more I threw myself into the situation, not only the the, the, the easier did it get, but the more. And it sounds strange because at the time I didn't, I didn't, I acknowledge it as consciousness. I just realized I could see more. And the more situations and the more violent confrontations I had, the calmer I was, the next one I'd be even calmer. And then the next one I'd be in calmer. I started to realize the more I did it, the easier it got. Yeah. And so for me, then everyday life became easier because I didn't experience as much anxiety. And so for me, you know, the reason I pursued or, or, or I wouldn't say I pursued um, – you know, violence at school, but I got, I seem to find a, get myself in a lot of situations where, you know, uh, that would be the outcome. I got into security where, you know, that was an outcome in a lot of situations. And I got very, I guess you could say, 
conditioned to learning how to deal with that type of stress. Yeah. And then I learned how to deal with the stress of, um, you know, a fear of heights, which was, you know, I, I, I did that by, I overcame that by jumping out of planes. And what I started to realize, the more I pursued, you know, the really terrifying things at an extreme level, you know, skydiving, I learned to meditate, you know, in free fall. And the more I learned to meditate in free fall, the easier meditation became when I woke up at 6.30 in the morning because it's yeah. a lot easier to meditate when you're not falling <laughs> through the sky at 220 k's an hour. <laughs> but, when you, but when you can meditate whilst falling through the sky at 220 k's an hour, that requires an enormous level of detachment, discipline, you know, um, acceptance. Um, but then that's why, you know, people look at me and say, when I'm meditating at the back of an event room and there's music playing and people, you know, dancing and screaming, I go, do you find it hard? I'm like, no, it's actually really easy Yeah, because I've meditated in free fall before. You know, I play, I love training with, with guns and weapons, munitions, the Navy SEALs, special forces, because they play at a very extreme level, but you have to be executing complex process while you're having your autonomic nervous system being fired and, you know, jumping out of a plane that fires off your autonomic nervous system fight or flight very hard to think but the more you condition yourself to think the easier it is uh, and the same with guns like when a loud noise goes off your autonomic system automatically fires and so for me i've pursued extreme sports extreme activities skydiving bungee jumping snowboarding because not only do i enjoy the pursuit of being able to maintain coherence in a high stake situations I really enjoy the benefit of every that it gives me in everyday life. I feel more calm. Yeah, you know, and it sounds strange. You do a few skydives, you come back, and I, I'm so calm. It's like I've literally had a you know four hour massage in a magnesium bath um, <laughs> because it just relaxes me. It really yeah. does. And the correlation too, uh, and I'm I'm assuming here. So correct me if I'm wrong. The correlation of that stress training at the the limits of your capacity, obviously pushes that capacity further you get the muscle um to to maintain you know consciousness and sensibility in stressful situations you know translates awesomely into business business is a full contact sport you know the marketplace doesn't care whether you've had a bad day curve and they're going to run it's going to run you over if you're not paying attention um and um you know talk to how that sort of has played out for you because you know from you know my observations, I could see that really being a parallel for you, the training outside and inside for your entrepreneurship yeah. as you grew. Yeah. Look, to me, entrepreneurship, and that's the difference between an entrepreneur and a, you know, I guess you could say a hobbyist, is the professional aspect of it. And well, how do you know you're a professional athlete? Well, you make money from it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so how do I know I'm, 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 I'm an actual entrepreneur, I'm a professional business person? Well, you're actually making money from it. Yes. You know, so going pro in any sport, and to me, entrepreneurship is just a different division. Fuck me, esports, you know, playing a computer is considered a fucking game. You know, it's considered a sport. <laughs> to me, it's like, why is an entrepreneurship? a sport it is in so many respects we are athletes and yes. as far as i'm concerned we're the most dynamic athletes on the planet because we require you know not only the endurance to be able to do long distance talk about an ultra talk about an ultra yeah talk about a fucking ultra I'll give you a fucking ultra 20 year fucking marathon but we also have to know how to sprint in situations you know yes. when you know tactics require it um and so for me the correlations are one and the same it's performance you know and human performance is fundamentally geared by the same systems regardless of whether it's in sport if it's in business if you're in the military or, or parenting it's all governed by the same systems, which is being able to access as much intelligence as possible, to be able to think as clearly as possible, to operate as efficiently as possible, to be able to maintain a level of effortless, you know, flow, so that you can get to the other side as 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 as, as I guess you could say as effectively as possible. Yes, you know. So whether your your mission is to rest your hostage or make 10 million bucks you know you've got to learn how to be able to maintain and acquire the resources and enable you to do that and that requires a lot of mental power 
And you know, one of the things that we know about stress conditioning is stress is not only the biggest killer on the planet, but it's the biggest thing that prevents people from being able to think clearly. You know, it's the biggest thing that prevents people's bodies from working effectively and efficiently. And when we can learn how to condition ourselves to a range of different stresses, the things that would normally stress us all of a sudden no longer do. And that's why I can jump out of a plane and I can come home and I can be in a social environment and be very relaxed. Why? Because a social environment would normally relax me. But once I've jumped out of a plane, there's no comparison. Mm. And so my ability to manage stress has just gone up, you know, know, quantum leap. And so for me, yeah, the more we learn how to condition ourselves to stress, the less stressful things become and the more flow we find in our life. And if you look at any professional athlete, the reason at the top of their game is because they have access to intelligence in high stakes situations. Yeah. You know, and they're able to flow, you know, through their behaviors to achieve a result. And the same thing is true in business. And the more we can condition ourselves to be able to adapt and adopt and, you know, respond to stress differently from everyone else, the more mental capacity. Because if you've got two players on the same field and one goes into an emotional stress response and one goes into a, you know, a heightened sense of clarity, you know, you've got to have one person who's got 100 choices on the table and you have another person who's got 50 choices on the table, you know. And in any situation, whether it's military, business or sport, the person with the greatest amount of opportunities is the one in most cases will have the greatest opportunity for, you know, the win or the score or whatever the outcome is that you're looking for. The awareness of those. And, and you know, under stress, I mean, part of um, what I've enjoyed over the last four years in, in the community that you've created in the K2 Elite program has been that opportunity to train in not near-death situations, um, <laughs> which is great. How nice is it? And this is the thing. Everyone gets the benefit from my my, my experience, but they, everyone gets the benefit, the power of these conditioning techniques without yeah. having to go and train with the Navy SEALs you know, or Special Forces, without having to near, have near-death experiences, yes. you know, without having to go and pay you know, $100,000 to find out what the top sports psychologists are doing on the planet right now with their athletes. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful – it's a wonderful – part of that community and and so while uh while we're sort of and that's a beautiful thing because you guys get to see we bring in you know special forces we bring in athletes we bring in elite business people and what do they do they tell us all the things they tell all of our clients they tell you guys everything that we've already told you and you go well hang on these guys are telling us what Kerwin's already told us. It's like, well, yeah, that's right, because you get the gift of this. This is a benefit. I'm just giving you these speakers are nothing more than validation. <laughs> it is, it is, and it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's often it's like I can't hear that from a partner or someone close to me, but when someone else says it, you go, oh yeah, okay, I recognise that now. You know, it's an interesting. But the same one. is true in a coaching environment. Like yes. some clients can't have heard the same thing from me so many times. They're fixed on what it means. Yes. The moment they hear it. You know, slightly worded differently from a different sex, from a different age group. They see it slightly differently and then something else lands. It might be the same information, but sometimes it requires a third party, a fourth party, a sixth party, a twelfth party to reiterate it before we go, fuck, there's a pattern here. It's you know? And it started with my wife. <laughs> you know, it started with my husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my podcast is called The Wealth Faculty and it's got a, it's a play on play on the word faculty. You know, your personal faculties, they, they have to be sharp, they have to be great they have to be trained and honed as you bring you know the best of you to what you're going to focus on or or pursue um can you talk for a minute about you know how do you hone your personal faculties you know your mental emotional physical well-being one thing that i've taken uh from you is is the the fasting uh, intermittent fasting i'm on the 8 and 16 or whatever it is now it's been fantastic game changer for me what are those other things Kerwin, that that you do and then you teach your, um, you know, people in your community um, to really yeah, look, focus on? The, the, first, the first thing I teach is the, the, the importance of and the power of routines mm. um, and what a routine really is. And a routine is nothing more than, you know, a process, an action, a behavior, a habit, 
Uh, and it's not, and again, I wouldn't even say a routine is a habit. Once a routine has been drilled for a consistent period of time, it becomes habitual or autonomous. Now we're getting into habit tor- territory. But you know, if you look at the most successful players in any sport on the planet, they all have routines. You know, whether it's golf, they have a pre-shot routine. Tennis, they've got a pre-game routine. You know, and even in tennis and even in golf, they have their pre-game and their pre-shot routines and yeah. their pre-serve routines and you know their serve routines and their return routines and everyone's got routines but and the reason that everyone who plays at a high level has routines is because they understand the importance of consistency and you know when you use routines you get high levels of consistency in your performance and whether it be behavioral routines or psychological routines or self-care routines you know the more we use routines that are proven by evidence to have impacts on our performance the greater performance we're going to be able to share and so for me you know when it comes to routines you know i classify routines typically in two categories you've got one percenters and you've got like 20 percenters yes and the one percenters are those little things you have to fucking learn the hard way through, you know, pursuit in the nuances and the minutia of, you know, um, evolution. And then you've got your 20% and they're the things that you pick up and all of a sudden you go boom and you get this massive leap in quantum leap in development or performance, you know? And so for me, when we start looking at the 20% as the 20% is really our intermittent fasting, you know, what that does for your brain, what that does for your body, what that does for your energy levels, you know, what that does for your overall immune system and your health. It's a 360 degree, uh, routine it's a 360 degree strategy and it's a routine my routine is i typically eat once or twice a day at the absolute most and that's a routine i've been following now for a very long time and it works you know incredibly well for me yes. another 20 percenter, you know is meditation meditation is an absolute 20 percenter you know it's, it's been scientifically proven uh, there is an enormous body of evidence around what it does four days of meditation has been proven to have a significant not a moderate not a mild a significant increase in performance you know for its ability to be able to harmonize and get the brain functioning in a deregulated environment in a far more connected space um you know it really is right up there as far as i'm concerned with another with uh, the the 20 percenters you know and then i i look at my my little one my my one percenters and my five percenters you know every single morning i drink a, li- a liter of, uh, of water before i get before i even get out of bed before i meditate you know and so i normally wake up i'll drink a liter of water i'll meditate for you know one to a couple of hours i'll come out and, and then normally have a routine that i do when i go into the bathroom i have a shower routine that involves not just washing my body but it is sufficient i also get to stretch and mobilize my hips um and then when i come out you know i have a routine in the morning with my family where i'll make you know make make uh, breakfast for my son or for the kids and sit down and have breakfast with them yep but um the biggest routines that i have when it comes to performance is meditation intermittent fasting you know and understanding the nutritional component of that um and you know a really solid hydration um, uh, hydration schedule straight off as soon as you wake up in the morning. On top of that, moving into the psychological routines is I have a set of, you know, I have a, a set of statements that whenever I'm feeling in a particular way, if I'm ever feeling off kilter or if I'm never not feeling right, whether it be for PT, if I'm training and you know, I'm doing strength training or endurance training, whether I'm doing yoga, you know, whether I'm about to go and do a, a presentation or whether I'm about to walk into a meeting, you know, if I feel like I'm not on my game, then the first thing I do is I start listening to, okay, what is the game plan? What is the what's the game strategy I'm delivering right now? And then I listen and then I go, right, what's the new strategy? What's the new plan? What's the new script? And I literally very consciously and very surgically start saying things 
that will tweak my attention towards the things that I'm looking to expand, you know, and that in most cases might be energy levels, it might be clarity, you know, it might be me commanding my subconscious mind to allow me to tap into whatever energy is required for me to serve these people at the highest level and receive the gifts of that service. Whatever strategy I need, you know, I command my subconscious mind to give me a photographic memory and allow me to everything I see, hear, smell, taste and touch, I recall with crystal clear accuracy so I can retain this information in the future. Whatever I need is a statement that will enable me as an outcome or as a fruition of that reality to perform at a higher level than I just start suggesting to myself it's you know in 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 um i guess you could say in linguistics terms it's called uh uh, self-hypnosis or auto-suggestion and i'm really really fucking right on auto-suggestion because that is a 20 percent as well yeah and do you see those one percenters becoming 20 percenters sometime the more you do them or the, do they stay one percenters because i like the 20 percent one percent it's great when you stack them up, you know, because again, our other one, other one percenters I've got is sun gazing, and I'd even go as far as say that's probably more like a five, six percenter. Uh, you know, uh, saunas, massage, yoga. You know, and I do this every single week. I have a yoga routine I'm doing. You know, two to three times a week. Yeah. I have a training routine that I'm doing two to three times a week. I have a meditation routine that I'm doing almost every day. I do a hydration routine that I'm doing every single day. You know, I have a sauna routine that I do once a week. A massage routine that I do twice a week. One of those is rehab. One of those is deep tissue and remedial. And to me, people go, well, that's not a routine. That's a massage. No, it's a self-care routine. And the more I preserve and protect and prioritize my self-care routines, the better I perform as an athlete when I'm in competition. Yeah. You know, and that's the big shift that people miss. They go, oh, it sounds like you don't even fucking work. You know, now, by the way, I've only been doing this level of routine now probably for the last, let's call it six months. But one of the things I'm discovering is when you take care of the athlete, you know, it he can run a faster race. Yeah. You know, and right now I've been winning races my entire life, but I've been winning races with an overtrained athlete, you know, and now I'm starting to go, well, let's try, let's, let's try and win some races now without overtraining the athlete. Let's win yeah. races now with a fully rested athlete. And so as a result, I prioritize the yoga, I prioritize massage, I prioritize PT, rehab, I prioritize all those things. And I work an incredible week around that, but as a natural consequence, I perform as an athlete. Performance better. And do you see, you know, in your own world and also in other entrepreneurs' world, this idea of like running on adrenaline and, and burnout, um, you know, is one of the, you know, prime challenges that we often face trying to maximize our opportunities. But also, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, sometimes you can take advantage of a moment, but, you know, there's a price to pay. There's, you know, you have to show up somewhere and in. And work I'm not it sure it's, just, it's, it's the maximizing opportunities that really plays into the adrenaline game. I think yep. in many respects, it's the mania of the entrepreneur uh -huh. you know, and the addictive feeling of adrenaline. Adrenaline yeah. is such an addictive substance. It is it so is. empowering. You know, it's what makes you feel like you can lift a fucking caravan off a baby if one was to fall on one. It's, yeah. it's, it's powerful drug. It's very powerful. And it's supposed to be used very carefully. But, you know, you can abuse the shit out of the drug adrenaline a lot until the age of about probably, you know, and some people, everyone's different. I've seen people enter adrenal burnout in their early 20s, mm. but I've seen some people that don't enter their adrenal burnout until their, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and sometimes later. Everyone's got it, you know, in, in, um, uh, in yoga, they call it, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, it's like wax and wick. You know, and I can't remember the names for it, but you've got two two forms of energy source. You've got your 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 wick, which is your candle, which is how you're bright, and you've got your wax. You know, and if you burn too much wax, you can't you can't get more wax. Okay, you uh. can't extend that wick. Okay, and if you burn really bright for too long, okay, you burn a lot of wax. And so, what we've got to learn how to do is burn consistently, and learn how to burn understanding that burning consistently 
may not give us the bright flashes, but it'll conserve our, oh, it's not the chi, because chi, I think, is the is the candle. It's something else. It's that wax. It's that ability to be able to sustain for longer periods of time. And that's where adrenaline is so addictive, but it also erodes people's ability when you abuse it long term. You know, it literally sets people up long term to have issues when it comes to um, their recovery strategy. Because if yeah. you keep abusing adrenaline, it gets to the point where your body just learns not to recover properly. Yes. And that's a really hard strategy to get. That's a really hard biology to get out of. Yeah. Um, not impossible, but it can get to the point where you experience what's called chronic fatigue or syndromes or symptoms. Um, and then you're kind of in the realms of, right, you have to completely rebuild your adrenal system from there, which can be done. I've done it. My partner's done it. I know many people who have, but it takes time. Takes Rebuilding time. an adrenal system in most cases can take a couple of years to do it yep. properly. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, addiction to adrenaline, you know, uh, you know, through the work you've done and many other books and things that I've read also, like we get addicted to emotions and plenty of other chemicals that are, that are running rampant in our, our worlds often. Um, you know, and, and you've got um, some technology that you teach, which is sort of that emotional pendulum, which really brings that into to the focus. So maybe speak to that for one or two minutes about, you know, you know, sometimes we can get addicted to our emotions and think they're real, sending us down the right path. Yeah, look, I think emotions are quite a dangerous thing. You know, they it's, it's like alcohol. They should have a warning label on them, <laughs> you know, and they, and, and they should not be prescribed to children under the age of, you know, 16. And I say that. <laughs> jokingly but what i mean is because uh, all emotions work on a spectrum and i think you know when you look at any emotion on a high spectrum in, in most cases it always causes some level of chaos if it's a child and he's overexcited it ends up in someone getting hurt mm. you know <laughs> if it's uh, a child who's you know overly melting down they're going to say something they don't mean if it's an adult that is hyper excited. They're going to say something they regret. If it's an adult that's really on the other end, they're going to say something that they're going to regret as well. And so we've got to understand the nature of um, emotions in and their design for humanity was to be fleeting. An emotion was designed to be a short-term experience that you transition out of. You experience it, you have the stimulus, you experience the emotion, then you transition out. Yeah. Um, but emotions by nature, you know, biologically work on the same receptors in the brain that, um, you know, that uh, our emo- uh, that other drugs do. So our emotions work on the same receptors as, you know, nicotine, as alcohol, as barbiturates and other forms of, you know, uh, addictive substances. And so what that gives rise to is the understanding that not just are substances addictive um, of an extrinsic nature, like alcohol, uh, substances of an intrinsic nature, like emotions, they have the same addictive principles. They have yeah. the same addictive qualities. And if you get people who are addicted to emotions, now you've got people who are addicted to being in some level of, you know, chaos. Because emotions by virtue, you know, don't allow us to see clarity. Because in order to maintain any of our emotion, if you're wanting to maintain a very, high, you know, high positive state of, you know, uh, of feeling, you have to ignore every single other negative aspect in your reality. Because when it comes to emotional context, we've got to understand we live in a world that is governed by a duality. You know, there are equal parts positive and equal parts negative charge in every aspect of the dimension that we live in. And that is uh, transcended through every aspect of this reality all the way down to our experience, you know, because in nature, there's not what is called good or bad. You know, if a tree falls down, the other trees in the forest go, don't go, oh, fuck, that was bad. The other tree in the forest, you know, see that as a re- an event that is just natural. It's a it's an event that is designed to, you know, re- recycle um, the, uh, the 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 nutrients, you know, because energy isn't created or destroyed; it's just constantly changing form. And unfortunately, humans we we like to define things as being right or wrong, good or bad. And so, you know, as by virtue of that, when we define things as being good or bad, we allow emotions to then carry forward 
the interpretation of that experience. And so when we experience that emotion, when we see something as good or bad, we don't see it in balance. We see it in imbalance and that creates the emotion. And when things are in the imbalance, you know, that's there, uh, there's a level of chaos. And that's where we've got to understand the emotions by virtue of their nature are caused from an imbalance okay, an imbalance in perspective, and they maintain the imbalance because when you label it as good or bad, you literally shut off your ability to see the ne- the equal and opposite negative or the equal and opposite positive aspect of what you're judging to be good or bad, mm. okay? And that's where the psychology comes into play. And so for us, you know, understanding emotions not only make us drunk because I'm sure everyone's done something silly under the influence of emotions, you know, then you sober up, you calm down, like, fuck, why did I say that? Why did I do that? I was excited. I was angry. I was sad. You know, when we understand the, the the addictive nature of emotions, that's one thing because they affect us, they intoxicate us, but they also inhibit us visually and psychologically from being able to see the whole picture. Yeah. So not only do they make us high, they also impair our ability to be able to process information. So we're not able to see as much information that is as, as available as possible. And in most cases, we'll only see half the information available because we're polarized by an emotion, okay, that has a charge that's either positive or negative. And if you're too far to one extreme, You'll ignore all the equal and opposite evidence to balance it out and you won't see everything. And I don't know about you, but as a business owner, you know, one of the most important aspects of decision-making, of effective decision-making is understanding the more information I have, the better the data I have, the better decisions I can actually make. Absolutely. So stress inhibits our ability to process information. Stress within seven minutes of a stressful experience, you lose 50% of your IQ. Mm. You're already compromised as an entrepreneur, a parent, you know, as an operative, you know, and then you combine emotion with that. On top of that, you've now lost another 50% of your reality. You're now down to 25% of sub-reality, right? Subjective reality. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, you know, as an athlete, as a parent, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, as a, as a, as a service person, that's not where you want to be playing the game from because it's only going to mean, you know, things will be missed. More mistakes will be made, more stress will be created and more um, justification for heightened emotional experiences will be given. And we will enjoy that because we'll indulge in the emotion because it makes us high, even though we're sad and we're angry, but we're still enjoying it because it's getting us high. And, you know, the, the, the cycle continues. And uh, that's where for me, I treat this literally like special operations. I treat this literally like elite sports because yeah. when you look at Federer, you know, when you look at the elite athletes on the planet, you know, their face looks exactly the same when they win a point as when they lose a point. Why? Because they're not emotionally invested in the game because they're neutral. Yeah. You know, neutral is where they get to see all the shots when they're excited, when they're angry. Man, what was what is every what is the whole point of psychology the the point of sledging, which is this psychological warfare that is carried on on you know on sporting fields, pitches, and courts all over the world? It's to activate an emotion. Yeah, it's to get under someone's skin and get them angry, you know, make them laugh, make them sad because they know on some level if I can get a chemical flowing, that's going to throw you off your game. You know, and so if I can sledge you, then chances are if you get angry, oh, I fucking won. Why? Because you're not going to see everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's maybe a very small probability you could use that anger and channel it really well to fucking hit a six, but the probability is very low. Chances are you're going to make an unforced error. It's like know? playing pool when you've had, you know, one too many beers, you know, like you, you, it might work for that one beer. It, it relaxes yeah. you a bit, but I'm then the you're too. I'm like that, Jay. You give me one beer and I turn into a snooker champion. You give me two beers and it's like I'm playing pool with a piece of rope. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, that sort of, you know, works into the idea of mastery in this sort of space because, mm. you know, as a as a business owner, an entrepreneur, you know, a, an, an athlete, what, what continues to drive you, Kerwin, um, 
you know, today, like, you know, certainly, you know, uh, you know, a, a good level of, you know, business success um, in the past decade, you know, what continues to drive you in this, in this way? You've got a big mission. Uh, is it the mastery of these things for you personally? Yeah, look, that's a big part of it. I think, you know, I, I feel very blessed and I hope this doesn't sound uh, obnoxious or arrogant, but, you know, I've done the work to get to a point where I no longer have to do it for the money anymore. Yes. And that's a real test of, you know, a real test of passion. You know, if you can get to a point where you don't need to work anymore, you know, you look at what someone does, you can really see what their values are. Yes. You know, what would you do if you didn't have to get paid for it? And I'm, you know, I've been that place for a long time now and I do this because I love it, you know, and I'm very blessed. You know, I get paid to explore and research and refine and adapt and develop, you know, the most incredible performance technology on the planet that can be applied. You know, I'm, I'm educating not just entrepreneurs and athletes, I'm educating parents and, you know, military personnel, servicemen personnel, you know, uh, you know, people of all walks of life, um, uh, firefighters, uh, police officers, you know, detectives from, you know, child abuse units and terrorist units. And I get the opportunity to touch people in a whole range of different ways. Yeah. And when you touch enough people in a range of different ways, you get enough feedback to start to realize that you're making a real difference. And, you know, one of the differences that uh, I've had the opportunity to make that's really created, I guess you could say, the greatest impact for me is uh, the impact on, and this is going to sound really weird because I'm a performance business guy, right, uh, the amount of lives that we've saved. You know, we would save, you know, hundreds if not a thousand, I would say in the hundreds up to a thousand people a year we get messages from. Um, people who said, you know, I just want to thank you. I was set out my day to die. I was going to take my life. I found a video. Your video started coming in my feed. I was getting ready to kill and I decided not to kill my life and I owe you my life. I want to say thank you to you for saving my life. This video saved my life. And, you know, the first couple of times that happens, you, it's quite overwhelming because it's like, holy crap, you know. Powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. But every time it happens now that I catch it, I'm going and looking at these profiles. And I'm seeing mums, I'm seeing dads, I'm seeing grandparents, I'm seeing grandmas, I'm seeing sons, I'm seeing daughters, you know, I'm seeing sisters and brothers, aunties and uncles. I'm seeing people that are in a constellation, they're in an orbit of a relationship dynamic, a family dynamic. And I look at that and I go, holy shit, you know, if they hadn't have seen that video, if I hadn't have cared enough to put, publish, you know, thousands of free videos, that family would now have a hole in it. Yeah. You know, the size of a crater from a meteor that could affect generations to come. You know, how many generations are affected in, you know, in the instance where someone takes their life? And so for me, you know, I was um, one of my uh, media team was doing an interview with me a couple of years ago and she asked me this question. She goes, how would you, how would you feel if you were taken out of this timeline? What comes up for you? Like, let's just say Kerwin Ray never existed. What's the first thing you think of? Mm. I burst into tears. I literally burst into tears and I went, oh, my God, I've never thought about this before. And the first thing I thought of was all of the mums, dads, grandparents, grandmas, daughters, aunties, uncles that would no longer be in a family unit anymore. And I was like, holy shit. Wow. You know, there's potentially in the last five years, thousands of people's lives, thousands of families, thousands of Christmases, thousands of birthdays, thousands of, you know, weddings that are now more whole you know, as a family, because we cared to do what we do. And so, you know, I joke about it now and I say, I can't stop. You know, how can I stop? How could you stop? How yeah. could anyone with, um, you know, a, a, a level of, but again, that reflects my values and my values are, I love to help people. You know, it's been a driving force for a very long time. It's unusual when you, for those who know me and you know me quite well, I'm very introverted. And so social media, you know, it's, it's in, social media to me is introverted media. It's the best way for <laughs> me to get my, my yeah. message out there. Yeah. Um, 
and, and it affects a lot of people. And for that, I'm, I'm very honored and I'm very grateful. Powerful, mate. Uh, the world's a better place for, for you doing that stuff and following your mission and passion too. So thank you. Mate, uh, as we as we sort of you know talk about the the family impact, you, you know your uh, not of recent times, but um, you know um, dad family unit, uh, you know the lessons that come from becoming a parent um, uh, are certainly almost even more powerful than being a business or an entrepreneur. You know, uh, how's that been for you in that transition from entrepreneur, you know, family oh. dynamic? Awesome. I, the, I, honestly, I'm so grateful for my son, Noah, um, because I've become such a better business person as a result of being a parent. But mm-hmm. I, And I don't know if that necessarily happens to everyone, but because I'm so obsessive about being the absolute best dad on the planet, you know, that requires me to really understand the most basic forms of communication, the most basic forms of leadership, the most basic forms of, you know, uh, of energetic um, space holding, emotional and stress regulation. Like it really has uh, taken me to a whole new level of uh, as a leader, you know, and as a communicator and as a human being in a whole range of different ways. And so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And for the first, you know, for the first two and a half years, um, you know, I was obviously in a family dynamic and then myself and my, my ex-wife, we separated. And then I did three and a half years as a solo stint, you know, three and a half years, almost four years as a single dad. And 50% of the time I had my son and I only used to get a cleaner for 90 minutes every weekend of the house, you know, hot breakfast, hot lunches, you know, hot dinners, um, you know, doing the washing, doing the cleaning, doing the school drop-offs, the school pickups, you know, running businesses at scale. Like people go, wow, well, you did, I did all that, all that fucking slogged it for three and a half years before I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'd actually like to spend more time with my son. So I'm actually going to get someone to do the washing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to get a little bit more help. And I think that was a little self-destructive, but I almost like I had a point to prove to myself. You, you consciously chose that. I remember you talking about that. You wanted to. I, yeah. I wanted to show Noah. I wanted to show Noah. And for three and a half years, I showed Noah that his dad could go to work and bust his ass every day, that his dad could come home and cook dinner every single night. His dad could cook breakfast. His dad could make a healthy lunch for him every day, drop him at school. Like I showed my Noah like how to be the, the best mum dad, <laughs> you know, yeah. a, man, a, a dad who can be a mum, you know, yeah. uh, at the same time. And it's really taken a, a massive lift in the last nine months. You know, and I, in January, I, I met a, a, a um, I started um, seeing someone who I'd known for a very short period of time. Well, actually, we'd known each other for a little while, but we hadn't known each other well. And then we started seeing each other uh, in January and she's got a nine-year-old daughter and, you know, that's evolved to where, you know, only recently we've all moved in together and we've done a lot of, I guess you could say, try before you buy. I like you know doing little holidays here and there and blended movie blended <laughs> yeah to integrate the family and yeah. you know I now I now proudly introduce you know Ayana as my uh, my brand new nine year old daughter so I now got a nine year old daughter and a uh, and a seven year old almost wow. seven year old son and it's a whole another level of dynamics yeah I'm now in a relationship you know I've gone from having to be able to you know be a dad fifty percent of the time I'd have my son fifty percent of the time and the other fifty percent of the time I and I just looked after me and I I got to be that selfish a little bit of that selfish curling again mm. but now that i've moved into the new dynamic i'm now a dad full-time i'm now a dad full-time to a nine-year-old little girl and i'm you know a dad you know 50 percent of the time to a, a seven-year-old little boy and i'm now a partner full-time living with another human being which in itself requires communication it requires everything and you know what this has demonstrated to me is just how good the shit is that we do because I'm having such a good time in the relationship. I'm having such a good time as a dad to a nine-year-old daughter who's got my might add 
the one of the highest fucking play drives of any child I've ever met, who was one of the most um, self-assured, self-confident little girls who has no issue saying no <laughs> and not wanting to budge, you know, and yes. it's, she's been amazing for me and I, I'm incredibly grateful for the whole situation and it's really fed my family values this year. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time to be able to, I guess you could say indulge and maybe even overindulge in um, you know, the whole aspect of family. You know, it's, it's taken me a long time to get to the point. I've, I've now got, you know, I've got a beautiful partner. I've, I've got two kids. You know, we live in a nice part of the world and uh, we've just bought a caravan. So who knows what's next? Camping, camping <laughs> extraordinaire. Mate, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, being with my partner over 20 years, three kids um, as well, uh, the training that we do as entrepreneurs, <laughs> you know, it's the same type of uh, opportunity to uh, deploy that training, uh, being yeah. a partner and being a parent, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know like any entrepreneur, at some point you want to yell at your team, but you don't, mm. you know, mm. or say maybe you do. If you do, you fucking shouldn't. Yeah. Okay, maybe there's one person in your team that you wish you could yell at, but you don't. Okay, but sometimes you know, there are parents out there that don't wish that they could yell at their kids. They do. And it's just like you've got to understand, you know, when you yell at someone, whether it's a you know, 25-year-old, 35-year-old or a 5-year-old, you know, as a human concept for connection, it's not a great way to communicate, you know, and that's one of the things I've learned as a leader, the power of really understanding what it takes to communicate. It takes two conscious, you know, um, trusting, non-emotional, non-stressed human beings to have the greatest potential for communication. And, you know, we talk about stress and emotions, you know, as an entrepreneurial trait, but for me, you know, where I see the greatest application is in the parenting space because the more calm and confident we are as parents, the less activated and triggered we are by our kids, the more they learn to go, oh, so it's normal to, for kids to melt down and adults to say normal. You know, whereas if kids melt down and then the adults start screaming, that's what they learn. And so they yep. learn when they become an adult and the kid melts down, they scream as well. And so what if we could fucking teach kids something different? You know, what if we could teach kids that when a child has a meltdown that you actually got down to their level and just held space and looked them in the eye and said, okay, just let it out, just let it out, just let it out. Then they'll go to school. Okay, they'll become adults. They'll see their kids melt down. They won't yell. You know, they'll hold, hold space, hold time, hold touch. The knock-on effect of that. And 2020 was, you know, uh, an interesting year to just to use a, a very light word for a lot of people. <laughs> and certainly, uh, certainly family dynamics being forced to be in proximity in that way, you know, some of those energies, yeah. you know, um, you know, some of those lessons certainly for us uh, were certainly deployed uh, continuously in our family and I'm sure the people in the K2 community have, have used them uh, well as well. But, so, you know, 2020, um, a lot of people said, well, fuck, what a year. Don't want that again. And, and I, I experienced kind of these two parts of the pendulum. So there was people who had, you know, it was a terrible year in, in the word terrible and, and an amazing year. Um, there's kind of these two opposites. You know, uh, how was it for you? I mean, you, you got to experience a lot of different entrepreneurs in 2020 and, and thankfully, you know, your training and also research gave a lot of entrepreneurs the heads up of what was coming. You know, that, that, that was a stressful year for you too and, and your team trying to take care of not only yourselves but, uh, but a lot of entrepreneurs as well because you take it seriously. I know you do. Mm. Look, I, 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 I'm, I'm very happy with the year. Have I lost sound, Paul? Something happened to the sound? No? Okay. I'm very happy with the year and, and how it ended um, for a whole range of reasons. I think the first one is because I'm just such a – look, for the most part, I'm very balanced in my perspective. So I can look at the balance and I can look at every year that I come off of when I have a mega year and go, wow, that was an incredibly successful year, but I can see the balance in it. You know yep. what I mean? And 
this is the first year that I've had in probably 20 years where I can actually go, okay, it hasn't been our biggest, it hasn't been a record year for us on record. Okay. But I can still look at the year and go, that was a bloody good year. It mm. was such a good year from a whole range of reasons. You know, we look at our K2 Elite community, you know, we, we didn't have anyone, I think it was almost not one business actually went into shutdown. We had a number of businesses that slowed down and went into a form of hibernation. But to have the amount of K2s go into have record months, record quarters, record years to date in industries that are being decimated, um, yeah, it was it was really quite uh, a humbling experience. Uh, I'm not someone that has regrets. You know, someone asked me the other day, what do you think was the biggest mistake that you made in, in, in 2020? And I said, look, I don't think it was a mistake, but I think it was something that was an unconscious oversight is when Corona hit, the first thing I, I did is I didn't go in, I went into offensive mode. I didn't go into defensive mode, mm. um, you know, because, you know, we have the resources to be very offensive. Uh, and the, But the offensive game that I played, it wasn't an offensive business strategy for my company, it was an offensive strategy for everyone in my network and in my audience, you know, and it's so interesting because it took me, you know, 11 weeks later, I look back and I was like, wow, I, I invested 80% of my time in that first 11 weeks into saving everyone else's business except for myself. <laughs> and that's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the results speak for themselves. We say, you know, we didn't lose one man. Um, and I, I'm very, very honored and grateful that we are so good at what we do to be well capitalized enough to have that kind of focus, you know, because yeah. if we weren't well capitalized, if we were, you know, like every other coaching fucking or most other form business coaches out there that were living month to month, we would have gone into stress like every other coach had and, you know, tried to be defensive for self and protect self. We didn't have to do that. Yeah. You know, we had the ability to go in and protect all of our clients, go in and service our, you know, we did, I think we worked it out. We did one webinar a day for 48 fucking days. Wow. One webinar a day. We did one webinar a day for 48 days and we pulled in the biggest and the best of the brightest experts from all over the planet, you know, to, and for that Corona care package. And that was probably the greatest, you know, um, community service that I've ever probably done because we had the amount of people that we had coming back outside of the K2 community that we, that we saved saying, my God, you've saved my business. You know, it was, uh, it was incredible. And I feel, you know, very, very grateful to be able to have that impact. But the, Flip side of that for us is we become incredibly digitally savvy this year when it comes yes. to digital productions, yep. when it comes to digital delivery. Uh, and also, thankfully, because of the way the year ended, we've become very good at the hybridized aspect of digital and live or virtual, I should say, is a virtual. correct Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virtual. <laughs> virtual and live um you know being able to combine the two because you know right now no one's being able to do live there's a lot of people that have been doing virtual there's only really been a couple of people been doing virtual well you know tony's been one of them yeah you know, we were one of the first people to come out and we did it like a i think just after it all happened we did a, like a eight nine hundred person virtual and at the time you know we were crushing what everyone else is doing with the production and then tony came out with the big dogs and, uh, <laughs> that and was amazing that was great but well because yeah. again he's a, he's a trendsetter you know and he yeah. came out with a two million dollar production yeah and everyone was like fuck that's how you do it and so i was in there and you yeah. know we're building a studio now here in byron bay um and so for me i look at this year and i'm Man, I'm so grateful. You know, we've we, we've had some pain, but it's been really good pain because it's forced us to look in, at areas that we hadn't looked at because we've been so fat. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing like uh, a, a little bit of a food shortage to make you go, all right, maybe I'm carrying a lot more weight than what is required for us to run at this pace that we are and maybe we'd run faster if we actually carried less weight. Mm, yeah, check in on what's important and um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and certainly the the concept of, you know, 
uh, understanding that tactical deployment of resources and you know taking advantage of you know opportunities for the year um, played out for a lot of people you know digital uh, that digital training all forced upon the whole world within a short period of time that might have taken decades to to get to you know, I've been threatening it for four or five years to start doing broadcasts, yes. doing virtual, and then all of a sudden we had no choice. And to me, I was just like, and the beautiful thing is, I'm not just saying this; it's all fucking documented. You know, I get videoed all the time, and for the whole time, for the moment Corona hit, I was like, guys, this is fucking amazing. This is going to be great. This is going to be amazing. You know, I, I'm. It's it's pretty hard to have a fucking bad day in my life in my world. Yeah. And um, Corona for me, much like you, the moment it hit, I was looking at all benefit, all upside. Um, and yeah, it's been incredible. The only challenge I guess you could say, and you know, which you're aware of is we've gone from being such a very heavy, uh, live events revenue orientated company and, you know, taking a, you know, we've taken a well over an eight figure hit whilst building up a broadcast revenue. You know, there's a, there was a big chasm to get to a level of parity to maintain operational, um, I guess you could say efficiency based on the existing model. Mm. And so for us, it was great because we had to look at operational efficiency to make operations more efficient with less revenue based on live, start building up the broadcast and the virtual revenue to the point where when both of those obviously, you know, become integratable because live is back to normal, virtual is back to normal, it's going to be quite an explosive period of time for us when we um, when we get back to I guess you could say that whatever that new normal looks like. What, what the new normal looks like. <laughs> and as long as everyone fucking sneezes in their elbow, you know, I think 2021 is going to be a big year for everyone. Yeah. Well, it's 2021's young right now. And so, you know, um, I'm excited about uh, this year as well. Uh, um, uh, I, I can see some good opportunities there, as, as I know you can. Um, and uh, pretty pumped about uh, making it happen this year. So it's been a been a great conversation, Kerwin. Really appreciate you joining uh, me today and, and talking through um, all things that we have today. It's been amazing. I could continue for hours, um, um, but uh, we'll I know have to do it again, mate. We'll have to come back and do it again. Do another one. Do a part two. I'd love to. I'd love to. But I always ask one question of all my guests. One last question um, as we. As we finish the podcast, um, and what is the true meaning of wealth to you, Kerwin Ray? Oh, uh, I think it's a spectrum, and for me, I think that the the true the, the true true wealth is in uh, is an in internal game. And I know this is going to sound fucking so cliche. <laughs> sometimes in life, you have to make enough mistakes, make enough, create enough um, pain in your life. And also make enough money in life before you start to realize what the really important things are. You know, Jim Carrey said, I, I hope that everyone can get the opportunity to make as much money as they ever dreamed so that they can then realize it was not what it was, they were, it was not what they were after. You know, and I feel very grateful that I've made you know, enough money to get to the point where I realize now it's not about the money. You know, I realize I've, I've got to the point now where I've bought enough things to realize it's not about the things. And for me, the greatest wealth I have is my perspective, you know, and how I feel. And to me, you know, being able to have, maintain a perspective that enables me to be consistently happy is, I think, the greatest wealth. And second to that, and again, you know, it's, this to me is always about fixing your own mask first. Because uh, you know, if I don't have the right perspective, then the second, the second thing doesn't really mean anything, which is family. You know, because family to me, especially now, I've got this incredible dynamic that I've dreamed of my whole life. I've got a beautiful partner. I've got two kids. Uh, I've got this level of wealth in a social, an intimately social dynamic that I've aspired to and dreamt about my entire life, and to be experiencing it now at the level that I am. You know, I could literally just pack it all up in a caravan and and bugger off and. Yeah, never be seen again and be completely happy. And I, I, and I've, and I've scored. I've absolutely, I know I've scored. 
I'm very lucky, man. I'm very blessed. Beautiful. As uh, as are we, um, all of those who are in your world uh, appreciate all of your energy and commitment to your values. It flows out into the world and it will continue to pay forward. Kerwin, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Jason, it's always a pleasure and thank you, mate, for everything that you've done for for us. You know, there's not many times I get the opportunity to acknowledge people in a, you know, in a situation like this and, yeah, you're not just a client, you're also an incredible friend and you provide with your wife, Shay, obviously an enormous amount of value, uh, not just as clients but also as partners in K2 and, you know, for those of you, you might be listening to Jay and you know his expertise is in the area of wealth and property, uh, but he is one of the sharpest strategic minds that you'll find when it comes to this space that we play out here. And, you know, he's also one of the sharpest business minds you'll find in this space. So thank you for, for all the value you provide, mate. Thank you, buddy. Namaste, but go. Bless you all. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us on The Wealth Faculty. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe where all good podcasts are found. You can find us there. And if you want to watch it, you can subscribe on YouTube, Positive Mentor TV. And until the next episode, take care. Bye for now.